Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijen. Welcome to season five. Yay. And also entering, you know, we're almost a a two-year-old podcast. Yay. I want to put that out there because we totally forgot our birthday last year. Not not (laughs) embarrassing at all. (laughs) But... You know, everything comes full circle. And today for our premiere episode here at the offices of the OMCU, we are never scared to ask the hard questions. So I got to know, no man, are you a Carrie, a Charlotte, a Miranda, or a Samantha? And keep in mind, because women Ooh. are complex and not easily shoved into one box, we can be a combo. And so yes, I'll yes, start yes. by saying... I am a Carrie with a Miranda rising and a Samantha moon. And if you can't tell, yes, I had my birth chart read for my birthday last year. Emily? (laughs) I am a Charlotte with a Miranda rising. And actually, I would say that's tough. Maybe Carrie, um, Carrie moon. But I, you know, there's a bit of Samantha in me now. So yeah, but this switched a lot over time. Like that's a big thing. Like you said, women are complex. I, it's kind of like Myers-Briggs. Like sometimes those things change over time. I definitely uh, have come to embrace my Miranda in my thirties. Uh, and there is the, although there is still a bit of Charlotte in me because I wore enough Ralph Lauren and J crew in my life to forever be a bit of a Charlotte. Wow. I don't know if I've ever met somebody who openly identifies as a Charlotte. Usually people are like quite embarrassed to be the I Charlotte know. of the group. I, it's like I'm a Hufflepuff. I'm a Charlotte. So be oh, it. I mean, I'm I also think a Hufflepuff, I, but I don't I don't like to tell people that. I, lean I like to let them believe towards... I'm a Slytherin. <laughs> 
I lean in more towards Miranda now, but I know there's still like bits of me that are Charlotte, uh, very, still very Charlotte, um, but not as much really. Uh, maybe I still, uh, anyway, I'll be thinking about this for the next five hours and I'll be texting you going back and forth is what I'm trying right, to say. Because you can't help but wonder <laughs> what your combination of Sex and the City characters are. It is, so as the show celebrated 20 years a couple of years ago in 2018, and they're coming up probably closer to a 25th anniversary than closer to a 20th anniversary. And I have to say, in revisiting the series, because now HBO had put up recently, I'm pretty sure you saw they have all of the seasons of Sex and the City now in HD, which is actually really kind of nice to not have that 16 yeah. by 9 like border the way that I'm used to seeing yes. it which is oh catching reruns on E like drunk or whatever so it's yep. nice to see everything sort of like in high def especially like pre 9-11 I, sorry to constantly talk about this in every season God opener damn it, oh my <laughs> Margo Fine. this was well, supposed to be the season we don't talk about 9-11 I'm sorry. Well, this will be uh, this will be a send off because there is like a marked difference because I'm watching the early seasons and typically I just start at like season four or five or whatever because those are sort of my favorite episodes are in there. But the early seasons are good. And I was especially curious to see them in HD. And there are so many shots of the Twin Towers. And I'm like, wow, they have like vintage New York in high def, like really like nothing else. But I have to say now that they're coming up. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say for me, Sex and the City's always been my quote unquote white no- noise show where I kind of have it on in the background oftentimes as I'm like cleaning or something like that. I come back to it every couple of years and it is very interesting to like go back to those older seasons and yeah, just see the Twin Towers everywhere and just see kind of older, you know, thanks a lot, Giuliani, New York. <laughs> Oh, wow. What what a catchphrase that I had completely forgotten about because now, you know, Giuliani is known for other things. But now that the show is getting close to its 25th anniversary, it is a little bit jarring to be the same age as the gals. Um, Something Mm -hmm. that when I first watched the show in like middle going into high school, I like desperately wanted to be them. And a lot of my 20s were sort of like modeled, I'm sure, like a lot of, you know, white straight women like myself who were like a creative writing major or whatever in college like we all had like the similar like sex and city aspirations for our 20s so to rewatch it now literally being Miranda's age and hear her say 33 and looking at her and then looking in the mirror being like oh weird okay I just (laughs) didn't really you know they painted a really vivid fantasy that you know, a lot of the think pieces that I read around like the 20th anniversary about how they sold like a fi- like a myth essentially of like feminism and like what you should what should you should be idealizing, like um, a relationship with a man who's unemotionally available to you. And, yes. <laughs> and uh, all of living above your these means, toxic, like exactly so all of these toxic, means. all of these toxic traits that you internalized while you watched it coming of age and then thought that's what your adult life should be like. Um, What is your relationship to the show? I mean, it's one of those that I go back. There's a reason I come back to it all the time. It meant so much to me when I saw it first in high school because 30s seemed so far away back then. And the idea of having a bank Mm -hmm. account that I could, where I could freely spend money on what I wanted or like, 
you know, all sorts of like constantly dating around different types of men. Like it was just, and then city living for that matter, I think was the big thing for those of us who I grew up near a city, but ultimately I'm a suburbs kid. Like the idea of living in a big city and like having your apartment, you decorate and brunching with your friends. And like, it was just a fantasy life that I dreamed of one day that I think in my 20s, I was very ready to be 30 by the time I hit 26, 27, because there was a part of me that really thought it was going to be like the show. Of course, over time, you know, I've and after a recession, like, I definitely uh, think, you know, there are many myths to the show that made it, you know, completely ridiculous at times. But, you know, I'm 33, like you, and I'm still coming back to the show for a reason. How about you? It was one of, like, the first adult shows that was, like, a show that me and my mom watched together. And so for – so I have, like, a lot of softy sort of feelings where we, like, we both got very invested in, like, Carrie and her relationships. And, I mean, all of their relationships for that matter. But I remember my mom and I, like, crying in, like, the final episodes over, like, what was going on with her relationship, like, when Samantha told – big like go get our girl me and my mom were sobbing like it's just it's fun to remember to remember that just I mean but that's how invested we really were and then I would say like the next adult show that I was like able to watch with her was like Sopranos so that was really also a golden age of HBO but I really kind of like upheld it as a huge fantasy and even though I grew up in like a big city so to speak it was also just a different city and like a different sort of lifestyle that you could have and although I never really like gave marriage that much deep thought, you know, in middle school and high school, I thought the one good thing about the show was that it painted like this really fun life of like, even if you, you know, I never felt the pressure because of a show like Sex and the City, because I saw women freely living in their 30s and not feeling like they had to have a husband and kids. And it was nice to see that other side. But also, I think a small part of me like you said, like in my late 20s is like ready to be in my 30s in a lot of ways. But I also had spent my early 20s living like season one and season two of Carrie and the Gals. You know what I mean? So totally. <laughs> there's a, and I think there's sort of you, like a little bit of both. No, I think you brought up a, a very, very, very valid point there. It's it's the aspiration. It's the wanting to live this way. And then it's the... um just being able to see a life that you had never, uh, that you and I both grew up knowing people who were in their thirties, who maybe are parents, friends, or relatives who are in their thirties, forties, still single, had successful careers and that kind of thing. But there are many people out there who didn't see that world, who saw that, you Mm -hmm. know, you're supposed to get married by a certain age and you're supposed to live this very cookie cutter lifestyle with two kids and a colonial and a pet and all that. What sex in the city provided, and especially now looking back on it as a 33-year-old single woman, uh, was a life of, of joy and fulfillment that can ultimately be found with the relation, most important relationships in your life uh, being your friends because they're the ones who stick with you through the thick and thin of it all. And I think that's a huge sentiment that everybody bought into and why the show sort of withstands the test of time, even though there are some like irksome storylines and um, verbiage that don't necessarily kind of hold up. It is that sort of same sentiment that unites everybody into loving sex in the city. And in a lot of ways, it's a gateway drug to Real Housewives for me in some ways. And it also sort of informed because I watched it at like a formative time. It also informs sort of like the types of shows that I seek out now, which are 
ones that are about groups of women like living their lives, whatever it may be. And Real Housewives sort of like falls under that umbrella. And in that way, I think that Sex and City has had a, as big of an impact as a lot of these like golden age of TV dramas get all of the credit for. Totally. Absolutely. So do you want to lead us off in a little bit of background about the author who famously, at least to me, speaking of Real Housewives, she got told by Dorinda famously at a party on camera during a Real Housewives episode. She asked Dorinda how she was doing and she said, not well, bitch, because allegedly one of the characters in Candace Bushnell's column and also in the show is loosely based on Dorinda and her first marriage and it's tumultuous and not pleasant. And so Dorinda's always fucking hated her. So I find that to be a really funny crossover for me personally. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty amazing. So a little bit about Candace Bushnell. She was born in 1958 in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And at 19, she moved to New York and sold a children's story that was never published to Simon & Schuster. Uh, Over the next couple of years in her 20s, she'd freelance for several publications, including Mademoiselle, Self Magazine, and Esquire. Um, And in 1993, she began writing for the New York Observer and a year later began writing the weekly column that would be known as Sex in the City from 94 to 96. The fictional column took material from the dating lives of Bushnell and her friends. The main characters were, of course, Carrie Bradshaw, the protagonist, and Mr. Big, her on-again, off-again romantic interest. Carrie Bradshaw being CB, her initials, same with Candace Bushnell, so she is her alter ego. Um, and Mr. Big kind of being based on her later husband, who she would eventually divorce, I believe, in 2012. Samantha, Miranda, and Charlotte important to note here, are featured in these columns along with several other people who kind of come back in the columns every once in a while, but they're ultimately much more minor characters. We also hear a lot more from those friends in the book, similar to the first season of the show. You'll notice with that first season, we'll get into this later, but the pace feels somewhat similar to the way the column was written. It's also a lot grittier and more realistic. Uh, There's more drug usage. It's just kind of supposed to be like New York in the 90s, which, you know, wasn't glitzy and glamorous. That was kind of the beginning of that. But really, it was still kind of a tough city at times. Fashion is somewhat discussed, uh, but it's not a character in the way that it is in the show and later the movies. Another thing with the personalities of Charlotte, Samantha, and Miranda are that they are kind of different. So Charlotte is actually kind of sex crazed and she's British in the book. While in the series, as you all know, she's very naive and prudish and waspy. Miranda is a cable executive. And then Samantha is a movie producer. So ultimately these characters were changed into kind of work for a TV show um, and to have kind of more long-term plot lines. So in addition to writing Sex in the City, Bushnell's written several other books kind of defining what is become to be known as the chick lit genre, if you will. So Killing Monica, Summer in the City, One Fifth Avenue, Lipstick Jungle, which was also famously developed into a short-lived TV show, Trading Up, Four Blondes, and The Carrie Diaries, which you all know is the young adult prequel to Sex in the City, uh, which lasted for two seasons on the CW as a TV show. Um, the column would later be bought and published as a book of essays in 1995 and eventually sold to HBO as a series a year later. Now I get to come in. There wasn't a lot of behind the scenes making of Sex and the City dirt. I was sort of expecting there to be some long oral history about how it got made, but it 
I, I did my best to put some interesting tidbits together. Created by Darren Starr, Sex and City ran from 1998 to 2004. It had 94 episodes over six seasons. And Starr, up until that point, had been best known for a lot of network dramas. So Beverly Hills, 90210, Melrose Place, and less successfully, but notably, Central Park West. Central Park West is interesting because based off the description, it almost sounds like a proto version of Sex and the City. So here is the description per IMDb. Central Park West centered around the glamorous and exciting life of the staff of the trendy magazine Communique, owned by Alan Rush, the Darth Vader of publishing. Mariel Hemingway played the role of Stephanie Wells, the newly appointed editor-in-chief of Communique. Central to the plot is the rivalry between Stephanie and Alan's stepdaughter, Carrie Fairchild, a scheming young woman who does her best to seduce Stephanie's writer husband, Mark Merrill. The series follows several other ambitious New Yorkers, as well as an evil and deceitful Australian bombshell, Rachel Dennis, the new fashion editor at Communique. During Central Park West's short-lived run, Starr began a friendship with Candace Bushnell, whose columns had been garnering attention. He paid Bushnell $60,000 for the film rights to her columns, and... Wow. <laughs> yeah, he that's it. 60 Gs. And Starr was drawn to the idea of a sex and relationship series from a female point of view, but he also wanted more than just a gender shift in perspective, which is to say, quick, quick which is to say instead of... What's up? <laughs> Quick break here. I'm just realizing that our girl Elizabeth Gilmore uh, Gilbert was paid about the same amount of money for the rights to Coyote Ugly. As yes, Candace but one Bushnell. would, but one would say Candace Bushnell has um, received bigger perks from only being Correct. paid sixty k for Correct. for her Sex and the City columns versus Elizabeth Gilbert, who like you know it took a really long time for people to appreciate Coyote Ugly for what it is. <laughs> So that is interesting. Maybe that was just sort of the magic number that you just paid non-screenwriters for film rights then. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. But Starr was drawn to the idea of sex and relationship series from a female point of view, but he wanted more than just a gender shift in perspective, which is to say, instead of just being another show about a woman who defines themselves through men and need to get married, these were four independent working women who spoke frankly about finding fulfilling relationships, whether for sex or for love, and one of the first shows I can remember that didn't make staying single look like a crime. Though a pitch for the series was considered at first at ABC, which is, <laughs> I don't know who's, at, first of all, what show would that have even been? But that's interesting because you said Lipstick uh, Jungle. That was a short-lived show on ABC, and it wasn't Lucy yes, Liu that yes. was in it. It was somebody else. It was another like no, you're the, TV yeah. series actress. I, I can't remember what her name is. Yeah, I'm blanking. Because yes, Cashmere Mafia also debuted around the same time, which had Lucy oh, Liu. Oh, you're so very right. Similar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But just an interesting connection there. But it was famously pitched at ABC first and ultimately went to HBO. Star wasn't totally convinced that Sex and City was going to be a good fit for HBO either. He later said in an interview, quote, I remember we were pitching to then HBO chief Chris Albrecht, who comes up a lot in our episode where we talk about The Sopranos. Then he was with Michael Patrick King, who we had developed the series together for the first season. I thought he's either going to laugh at us or throw us out of the room. And he laughed. Star sold the project to HBO as, quote, a modern R-rated version of the Mary Tyler, Mary Tyler Moore show. 
It's <laughs> unclear at what phase my- Michael Patrick King came in, but he's just as associated with the show's legacy as Darren Starr. Prior to Sex and the City, King had gotten his start as a writer on Murphy Brown and had won a couple of Emmys. And because the show is a reflection of its two biggest influences, Starr and King, who are both gay, Sex and the City had a big emphasis on Chosen Family, which, interestingly enough, came up earlier this week in our Bachelor group chat. I really appreciate this show because it's very singularly focused on the women and their group dynamic, and they don't need to have some traumatic backstory or family trauma going on in order for their stories to be worth being told. So I always really appreciated, especially in one of the recent episodes I watched of Miranda talking about how like she doesn't want to have to go back to her parents because she doesn't like them. And it's like one of the few instances that we ever really hear about their family, which I always just really like that. So after they hired industry newbie Michael Green, King would joke that the show is about four women in their 30s and was being written by two queens and a 20-year-old. Female writers and producers like Amy B. Harris, Jenny Bix, Cindy Chupak, Liz Tuchillo, uh, Julie Rottenberg, and Eliza Zuritsky were added to the mix later on. Star wrote the pilot with Parker in mind as Carrie. According to Parker, she, quote, was flattered, but I didn't want to do it. He convinced me, begged me to do it, and I signed a contract. The pilot episode was shot in June of 1997, a year before the series premiered. Parker hated the pilot so much, she said, quote, hated the look, the clothes. I didn't think it worked. And she was scared that it would ruin her career. So she wanted to get out of her contract so bad. She offered HBO to work in three of their movies completely unpaid if they let her out of her contract. But Star didn't release her. Yeah, that's how desperate I was like, dang, like three Sarah Jessica Parker movies for free. That's actually like not a bad deal, to be honest. But no. what do I know? Um, but Star didn't release her from her contract. And what he did was actually listen to her and implemented a lot of the changes that she had suggested before they went ahead and shot the rest of the season, which is why the pilot is so unlike anything from the rest of the show that we all remembered. And if you haven't Mm -hmm. seen the pilot or it's been a while, as I said, especially now because HBO has remastered all of the show for HD, it's totally worth it to go back and watch it. Like tonally, completely different, aesthetically, like you said, way more gritty. Like it just, the first season kind of evens out towards the end. And I feel like really season two kind of hits its stride and really sets the tone for the rest of the series. But the pilot episode in particular There are some shots where you're like, it is, why is it so dark? Like, literally dark. Yes. Yes. Like some Greg Berlanti universe shit dark. Yes. It was very like a CW teen drama. Parker went on to say, the funny thing is, after the first episode of season one, I never looked back and the rest is history. I never thought, though, that the show would become what it has become. And that's a really fucking Carrie thing to say. Yes. All right. We're going to get into... The, the main four, there are a lot of characters, especially because it's it's an ensemble. Uh, it's, it's an ensemble comedy. There are tons of people. So we're just going to focus on the main four ladies. We are going to, you know, talk about our favorite guest stars later on, just little brief mentions. But we're going to really dive into the character. And of course, it's fitting to kick us off with Carrie. So Sarah Jessica Parker before Sex and the City was like a tween child star, best known, at least I think, by and large, uh, for square pegs. And then she turned into a mostly movie actress in the years leading up to Sex and the City. And she was in Miami Rhapsody, First Wives Club, and of course, Hocus Pocus. But really, she is best known, and I think this goes for all of them, as Carrie Bradshaw. So in the last five to ten years, there have been a lot of think pieces around Miss Carrie the Bradshaw. Especially, you know, the last 10, 15, 20 year retrospectors, there are lots of collections of columns dedicated to thinking critically about the show and its impact. 
But as a Vogue writer so succinctly put it, we want it to be Carrie's quirky, effervescent, scrappy, sexy, funny, equal parts Dorothy Parker and Holly Golightly. Carrie is the narrator and the protagonist, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Each episode is structured around her train of thought while she writes her weekly column, Sex and the City, for the New York Star, which is a fictional paper. She's a member of the New York Glitterati back when that was a term that people casually threw around to describe other people, which is basically like a socialite who doesn't sit on any sort of like philanthropic board. She is a bar, club, restaurant staple known for her fashion and famously lives in a studio apartment on the Upper East Side that she cannot afford. Outside of Miranda, Charlotte, and Samantha, Carrie's other BFF is Stanford Blatch, a gay talent agent from an aristocratic family, played by Willie Garson. Carrie has a prolonged situationship with Mr. Big, Chris Noth, trigger warning, if you if you follow Dumois, you know what that means. He is a prominent businessman and an aficionado of jazz and cigars and being fucking misogynistic. His real name is later revealed to be John James Preston, a fucking dork. Carrie was supposed to be brunette. But just 24 hours before the pilot was shot, producers changed their mind because Bushnell is a blonde, so they dyed her hair back. But her hair is darker in the pilot, but then it immediately changes. The infamous tutu worn in the opening credits was Sarah Jessica Parker's idea, and today the tutu is framed and hanging above Michael Patrick King's office. Parker would spend up to 18 hours a day wearing heels as Carrie, and that would be that would be a clause in my contract. Not no nudity, no 18 hours in high heels. That would be my clause. But two quick, Correct. you know, speaking of behind the scene contracty inside Hollywood bits. Sarah Jessica Parker was the only one of the girls with a clause in her contract stating that she would never appear nude on screen, which is exactly why all of her sex scenes have her with like a bra on or like pretty much fully clothed. And her power increased in 2001 when she was made an executive producer and began making $3 million per episode. These two things, plus when you rewatch the show, the amount of humiliation they subject Samantha to is a full-blown yikes. But I believe these two things combined kind of contributed to the rift with Kim Cattrall, which we can or can't get into. We'll see how we feel towards the end. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. easy. If you like the show at all, you're fully aware of what's happening. But I always, whenever that comes up, it always reminds me of why they probably don't really like each other, or at least if I were Kim Cattrall, I would not like Sarah Jessica Parker. Would agree. So I'm going to get in Miranda Hobbs, played by Cynthia Nixon, who uh, prior to Sex and the City was best known, much like Sarah Jessica Parker as a child star. She was in Little Darlings in the 80s, as well as Amadeus. Uh, Miranda is a tough, hardworking lawyer, originally from Philadelphia, who's cynical about men and relationships. Over the seasons, however, we see her soften, become less of this person, especially as she develops a relationship with Steve Brady and gets pregnant later with her son, Brady Hobbs. Steve is the main of Miranda's three major relationships that we see throughout the series. Before I dive into Steve, we'll go through Miranda's main relationships chronologically. Skipper Johnson, Carrie's nerdy web developer friend, is the first. Miranda sees him as a one-night stand she she can brush off while he develops feelings for her and is deeply in love with her. Additionally, he's super sappy and sentimental when it comes to relationships, which contrasts completely with season one Miranda's views. She is only attracted to him when he's with other women. We never hear from Skipper after the first season, thank God. And I believe he would definitely be a quote-unquote nice guy on a dating app if you catch my drift. We 100%. Yes. <laughs> we will meet Steve Brady in the second season when he's the bartender at a bar where Miranda is waiting for Carrie. Initially a one-night stand, Miranda doesn't see Steve as much else than that, although Steve is very nice and continues to want to see her. They develop feelings for one another, but eventually break up first 
because of money issues and their schedules, uh, with Miranda being a nine to whatever time lawyer um, and Steve being a bartender. But they remain friends with benefits and ultimately one of their hookups, which happens to which happens when Miranda kind of pity sleeps with him after he loses a ball to testicular cancer. This will lead to Miranda getting pregnant with Brady. Steve is very much a part of Brady's life, and though there are moments where it seems like they'll get back together, Miranda and Steve decide to stay friends for the first year of Brady's life, with Miranda dating her very hot neighbor, Dr. Stephen Lees, played by Blair Underwood, and Steve dating a woman named Debbie. Debbie, But ultimately, at Brady's first birthday party, they confess their love to each other, get married, and move to Brooklyn. I would like to take a moment for for Miranda, because I believe she has received the best pop culture makeover or viewpoint, if you will, in the last 20 years. Uh, There's a great article in Vanity Fair that was published in 2008 about a Sex in the City bus tour where the author went along with a bunch of bridge and tunnel tourists through this tour. No one raised their hand when it came to the question of who's a Miranda on this tour. And I would like to say 20 years later, 15 years later, that has changed a lot. I think people have realized post-recession, post-everything, Uh, that Miranda was a fantastic character, one of the few people who could be honest other than Samantha, and was very famously a part of a campaign on every outfit on SATC Instagram account for We Should All Be Mirandas, um, which was really big when Cynthia Nixon ran for New York governor. And it's also a book. There was a book that came out a year or two ago called We Should All Be Mirandas. And I've heard it's quite charming, and it's been on my list for a really long time. Same. Okay. Now we're going to get to Charlotte, Emily's true north. <laughs> Kristen Davis, prior to Sex and City, was pretty much like a soap star, if I, if I had to sum it up. She was on General Hospital for a while and then Melrose Place, where she presumably met Darren Starr. But Charlotte York is the optimistic, hopelessly romantic, and a true believer in love and soulmates. From the start, Charlotte is searching for her knight in shining armor, and nothing shakes her belief in finding the quote-unquote the one. Getting married and starting a family is her number one goal. She's also, I choose my choice, just just so you know. One of the worst things I've ever, that just makes my skin crawl whenever I think of her screaming that at poor Miranda. She's also the one whose background we learned the most about. She had a conventional privileged Episcopalian Connecticut upbringing. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I choose Uh, not to ever get better. I was going to say Pescatarian. Yeah. Well, I say pescatarian more often than I say Episcopalian. Anyway, she was brought up in Connecticut famously and works in an art gallery. Charlotte is a classic overachiever and a perfectionist, a straight-A student who went to Smith. She'll constantly remind you. It's also revealed that Charlotte was voted homecoming queen, prom queen, most popular, student body president, and track team captain, in addition to being an active cheerleader and teen model. She's the total pole opposite to Samantha, so much so that I definitely questioned multiple times over the course of six seasons how and why they were still friends. All of Charlotte's dating activity during the show is in pursuit of a long-term monogamous boyfriend that can turn into marriage. She has a very specific type. Men have to have a pedigree and money, so she really only goes after bankers, doctors, lawyers. Well, one time she bangs that actor guy. But anyway, her long-term pursuits are always of that nature. I like Charlotte for what she brings to the dynamic, but always was less interested in her storylines. Yeah, I mean, with me and with Charlotte, I say that I'm a Charlotte in that that was who I was for a long time in my life and things that were important to me. Um, I think what I like about Charlotte, though, is that in many ways, I 
I appreciate her, the growth that happens to her character in the second half of the series. And ultimately, her happy ending made me cry a lot <laughs> at the end of the show. She does get her fairy tale ending, which I thought was probably the most in line with the character overall. I know that people have qualms with the way the show ended, but we'll get there when we get yes. to the season overview. That we will. Uh, I'm going to go into Samantha Jones, who is played by Kim Cattrall. Prior to Sex in the City, Cattrall had been in several movies. Uh, probably most famously, I probably Mannequin would have been her most famous film as the Mannequin. <laughs> Samantha is a powerful public relations executive and has her own business. She's also the most fearless one of the group, a self-proclaimed trisexual, meaning that she'll try anything once. She often ends up with the most adventurous and hilarious of storylines throughout the series, including dating a guy with bad-tasting semen, recreationally taking Viagra because a guy that she's having sex with is taking it, and on multiple occasions being okay with being filmed having sex. The majority of her affairs at the beginning of the series are brief and really only tied to sex, but she has four major relationships during the series. The first season is with James, the jazz musician who just isn't big enough for Samantha isn't, and isn't well endowed in general. Uh, the relationship ends during a therapy session in the season two opener. Maria Reyes, an artist who becomes Samantha's first series relationship with a woman. Richard Wright, a hotel magnate who basically is like the male Samantha, only for Samantha to date him and start to develop feelings for him and have to spend most of their time together worried about his infidelity and being his old self. Finally, she meets Smith Jared, who we first meet as Jerry Jared, played by Jason Davis, a 28-year-old waiter and aspiring actor that Samantha hooks up with, with no intention of doing much more outside of that. But over time, she works with him to further his career, eventually leading to him being the absolute hunk on the Times Square absolute ad and a role in a Gus Van Sant movie. It's also during this time that he opens up about her, about his life, and in return, she does the same. And when Samantha is diagnosed with breast cancer during the final season, he stays with her and helps her through treatments, going as far as to shave his head when she loses her hair to chemo um, and refusing to sleep with other women as Samantha loses her libido. I ultimately love Samantha's growth throughout the series, even though she was subjected to some of the more humiliating storylines. I think Samantha and Miranda, I'm, it's it's funny that we had, I ended up talking about Samantha and Miranda because I find both of their storylines to be the most rewarding of the two of the four characters uh, throughout the series. And I think that the growth that they both share, having first been the two cynics when it came to love, um, later becoming the ones who find partners who are good to them. And with that, uh, we've gone a lot into the seasons here and there. Um, we're going to break this down. So I'm going to kind of talk about the first three seasons of the show. The key thing to point out with season one, which we talked about earlier, is how different it feels than the rest of the show. A lot of experimentation was happening. You'll remember that there are man-on-the-street style interviews where people provide their opinions on certain topics, such as dating models or reciting their threesome personal ads. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, we meet a lot of one episode friends of Carrie and the girls in the first season, and to an extent, the second season as well. This is where we got St Skipper and Stanford, but luckily we get to keep Stanford because he's a peach. 
The first season also introduces us to Mr. Big, who we first see in the pilot after Carrie literally runs into him on the street, causing everything to fall out of her purse, including a whole lot of condoms. They later see each other at a party uh, when Samantha tries to unsuccessfully flirt with him. Carrie and Big begin to see each other casually, but Carrie breaks it off after he won't refer to her as the one and won't introduce her to his mother. Miranda is on again, off again with Skipper um, throughout the season, and Charlotte dates a guy, dates several guys throughout the season, including one guy who wants to have a threesome, a guy who wants to have anal, which is a whole plot line, by the way, for an episode, and briefly dates a marriage-minded guy that Carrie dated, but later later set Charlotte up with. But they Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today disagree over china patterns finally samantha sleeps with an artist who likes to videotape his encounters and with charlotte storman a young irish guy um and then she meets james the jazz musician who has a micro penis uh and that's really kind of the overview of the first season <laughs> what a way to end that with yes. the micro penis jazz <laughs> player jazz player Second season. All of this is extremely fresh because I just yes. rewatched the whole first season like last month. So every plot point you just described, I'm like, uh huh. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That was uncomfortable. All And then it's funny when you line up all of Charlotte's plot points in a row. It's like, wow, they really kind of put her through it in the first season. It's funny. It's funny for she and um, Samantha to be such polar opposites. They are both subjected to the most humiliating of plot lines throughout the series. Yes. The second season is really the nail in the coffin with the breaking the fourth wall conversations that happen. Thank God. Uh, Carrie's first post- those little yeah. cutaways to random New Yorkers. Cutaway- yes. Like yes. it's a fucking yes. Woody Allen movie. You're like, please yes. stop. Stop now. Thank you very much. Carrie's first post big breakup guy is a Yankee, as one does in New York. She also dates a few other guys throughout the season, including her former friends with benefits, a writer who's bad in bed but has a great family. I'll talk about him later. Um, and a recovering alcoholic who swaps his alcohol addiction with sex. Uh, but all of these are almost all one episode relationships. She secretly starts seeing Big again, but ends it a second time when he tells her he's going to move to Paris, but doesn't invite her to come along. She later runs into Big towards the end of the season when he's back from Paris, and with him is his 20-something fiance Natasha, played by Bridget Moynihan, during a trip to the Hamptons. For Miranda, the second season is where she meets Steve, who, as I mentioned earlier, she believes nothing to be more than a one-night stand and can't believe how nice he is. They break up for the first time due to their schedules and money, but later hook up again, not before Miranda dates a guy who wants to get caught 
played by Will Arnett, a peeping He's Tom. in my guest stars. <laughs> and a divorced dad that she meets at the um, at the gym. Charlotte dates a couple of guys throughout this season, no serious relationships, including Mr. Pussy, a guy who's obsessed with yeah. Penalingus. Yeah. Uh, a widower. And then a, a man who goes under adult circumcision, um, the actor that you mentioned earlier, a too effeminate pastry chef, which is a kind of homophobic episode in hindsight. But, Actually, it's very but played by played by Val from The Birdcage. It was bothering yes, me yes, the yes. entire time. I'm like, why do yes. I know this guy? Why do I know this guy? Exactly. Um, oh, and she gets she ends the season by getting crabs from a 20 something guy during the Hamptons episode. Oh, Finally, right, yeah. <laughs> with Samantha, she ends things with James at the beginning of the season. She then sleeps with a litigator, a salsa dancer, her trainer, a sports fan. Oh, who only will have sex with her when his teams win. Oh, and Charlotte's brother, which is a point of contention for them in that one episode. Um, and then she meets the opposite of well, a guy the, with a micro the penis. Knicks. Yeah, the Knicks guy who uh, the she New has York to Knicks a guy fan. is really funny. Well, it's really funny because a like they're <laughs> talking shit about the Knicks losing all the time. That's funny, but the part where he's like, "Okay, now I can devote all my attention to baseball," and that's when she's like, "I can't fucking do this." <laughs> is extremely relatable. I can't. I cannot come it's... on this baseball journey with you. <laughs> there are too many opportunities for um, them to she... lose. She's right. <laughs> Too many, too many. And then finally, she ends the season with a man who is the opposite of James, where he has a penis that is too big for her. The third season is where we open with Carrie dating a politician who prefers golden showers. But after a two episode arc, she meets Aiden Shaw and begins a relationship with him. Aiden played by um, John Corbett. Meanwhile, Big marries Natasha, but later Carrie and Big begin having an affair, and after Natasha catches them, she and Big divorce, and Aiden and Carrie break up for the first time. Miranda and Steve move in together. He tells Miranda that he wants them to have a baby, uh, but Miranda sees his commitment issues with a puppy, decides that he's too immature for her. He moves out. She becomes partner at the law firm. Uh, she goes on to date a guy who's into phone sex, a fake ER doctor, and a police detective. Charlotte dates a few guys before she meets Trey McDougal, a waspy doctor that checks off all the boxes Charlotte desperately wants in a husband. Ultimately, he's the epitome of good on paper and their proposal is not great. She later also finds out the night before the wedding that Trey can't get it up. And these problems with sex continue into their marriage paired with a terrible mother-in-law, aka Bunny McDougal, and the two eventually separate. Finally, Samantha sleeps with a firefighter, a short man, her assistant, a black guy with a disapproving sister, and then a recreational Viagra user, which means she then starts using Viagra, and the guy with the nasty tasting semen. She dates several other people, uh, including a college-age version who shares the same name as her, Sam Jones. Um, but she does not date anyone seriously during this season, although she ends the season buying her new apartment in the meat packing district where she has to get along with her transgender, uh, women, uh, sex workers who are on her street. Although they use a lot more derogatory terms when talking about it because, uh, yeah, this show sometimes has its problematic moments as we all know. Well, yeah. I mean, remember when I said that there were um, there's verbiage that's not uh, up to date with how we uh, speak to people. <laughs> so there's some of that outdatedness. Every once in a while, you'll think like I recently rewatched Bowfinger and you're like, wow, this movie really holds up. This is really, really funny. And then it cuts to a scene where they recruit their crew 
by waiting at the border and there's like gunshots and I was just like I uh, mm, like thank god the arc is actually Mm -hmm. quite sweet Mm -hmm. but like you really you could have just like gone to a construction site and accomplished literally the same thing you know what I mean like it didn't need to go this way Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. yeah obviously in addition to like verbiage it's not exactly reflective of New York in the sense that we are watching and following four straight white affluent women. Well, Carrie, I guess, isn't that affluent because coming into season four, there are some questions into her finances. And this is sort of like, I think, where people started to turn on her when she's like, I don't know how money works. And you're like, that's not a fucking cool thing to say if you're an adult woman and you guys can't be preaching this like, I'm independent. I don't need no man. And then be like, I don't know what bank account is. Like, it's not, it's fine if you're 22, but it's not cute after that. So I, I feel like in some of the think pieces that I read, that was like a turning point for a lot of people who were like, Carrie actually sucks. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And that's probably get why I that. don't identify as a Carrie. <laughs> I mean, I still unfortunately do because I can totally <laughs> be a self-centered asshole, but I'm not going to like, well, you know, there are, there are lots of things that we don't have in common, but, um, one thing that I really want to talk about that happened, well, because season three is just so good, like the wedding scene, Charlotte's wedding, yes. when Carrie yeah. shows up and she and Aiden had just broken up and yeah. that was a very cry-filled episode and she barely tells anybody and then Charlotte tells her about Trey's broken penis and that's a whole thing. And then even her getting caught by Natasha and she like breaks Natasha's nose kind of by accident or someone yes. gets their nose broken because they fall. Yes. That's a whole Natasha other does. separate issue. Yeah. Nat- okay, that's what I thought. And then initially, Natasha, the role of Natasha was offered to Candace Bushnell. Um, Darren Starr asked her if she wanted to play the role. And she's like, no, thanks. I don't want to be the the other, the wife, pretty much, the thankless <laughs> role. <laughs> but in season four, we start off, season four ran through, I think, late 2001, early 2002. And we start with Aiden and Steve opening a bar together because, of course, the two nice dudes open a bar together. Carrie and Aiden get back together shortly Mm. thereafter. Aiden moves into Carrie's place after he buys it when her building goes co-op and then he proposes. Carrie agrees and then Carrie famously wouldn't wear her ring on her ring finger but put it on a necklace because it was, quote, closer to her heart, which I thought was so deep when I was like 14 or whatever. But Jesus Christ, obviously a huge red flag, like the big, just waving it around. Yes. Anyway, it turns out Carrie isn't ready for marriage. She's unable to move past the affair with Big, and she isn't sufficiently convinced that Aiden has and that he uses them getting married and having to set a date as a way to, uh, I don't know, overcome the cheating and to, you know, sort of be like, I won, you have that. So they break up, which is an episode, again, where they break up for the second final time, an episode where I sobbed because I'm an Aiden stan. I know, where's my Aiden hive at? That's like her true end game, and I really hope that the new... I hope the new series like really kind of like runs with that. Anyway, after Carrie and Charlotte get into a fight about loaning out money, Charlotte eventually lends Carrie the money for the down payment for her apartment because she isn't able to stay in her apartment because she spent $40,000 on shoes. It is came to light in, in a certain episode. But Charlotte, after their big fight, lends her the down payment in the form of an engagement ring that she got from Trey. At the end of the season, Carrie discovers that Big has sold his apartment and is moving to Napa. Speaking of Charlotte, her, she and Trey are living apart, but continuing to bone. Eventually, they get back together, and Charlotte moves back in. That's when they start to try for a baby, and that's when we first learn of Charlotte's reproductive issues. After fertility treatments and discussing, ado- and discussing adoption, their marriage breaks apart under the strain, and they divorce. 
Miranda supports Steve through testicular cancer and later gets pregnant. She initially considers abortion, but is partially convinced not to after Charlotte's distress over not being able to conceive. So she keeps the baby. And then P.S. Steve breaks up with Miranda again because he feels, quote unquote, emasculated, which is like not a fucking thing. But whatever. Steve is trash in retrospect. I can't believe I used to root for him. The patriarchy is truly a disease. Get well soon, bitch. (laughs) Samantha has a big season, too. She starts off in a relationship with a woman and then ends up with Richard Wright, James Remar, who cheats on Samantha and breaks her heart in the end. And season five aired in 2002, and there are only eight episodes in the fifth season because Sarah Jessica Parker was pregnant with her first child, who was born in October of 2002. Uh, yes. So Carrie spends who can forget that pretty much all of season. <laughs> uh, Carrie pretty much spends most of season five by herself, and she fears that she doesn't have anything for her column and that she's going to be fired soon. But instead, a publisher reaches out to her and tells her that she wants to turn the columns into a book. Later, the book tour lands her in San Francisco, where she reunites with Big. There's that great episode where they take the scenic train, which I absolutely love. Then back in New York, she meets Berger, (laughs) a fellow author, and then she feels a spark, but he has a girlfriend. Samantha tries again with Richard, but finds herself constantly paranoid after being cheated on by him the first time. And on a trip to Atlantic City with Richard and the girls, she can't overcome her lack of trust in him, and they break up for good. Miranda, now a mom to Brady, finds it difficult to work, date, and carry on with her previous lifestyle. She and Steve sort of try to get back together off and on throughout this season before ending it again. Charlotte has a run-in with her former mother-in-law and also, like, the best person to come out of the whole Trey storyline, Bunny, over the legalities of the apartment that she used to share with Trey. And she hires Harry Goldenblatt as her divorce attorney. Despite his physical shortcomings in the sense that he's, like, bald and sweaty and hairy, she finds himself attra- she finds herself attracted to him and begins her journey with the Jewish faith. Remember that episode where Carrie catches Charlotte doodling, like, Carrie, Charlotte York Goldenblatt. Charlotte Goldenblatt yes. York. Fucking Charlotte, dude. Like, I feel like that is the <laughs> encapsulation of her entire character. All right, now the sixth and final season. Final season aired in two parts from June to September of 2003 and then later wrapped up in January, well, January through February of 2004. So we begin with Carrie dating Jack fucking Berger, but things quickly go sideways and his struggles as an author and her success with her upcoming book cause too much conflict and they break up on a post-it. I remember feeling so much rage at this man. I was like, we were all rooting for you, Berger, all of us. And this is how you do us. This is also the episode where I was like, ooh, smoking weed is cool. And now look at me. Um, <laughs> big returns to New York for angioplasty. It's when he has that whole like heart thing that causes Carrie to dress like a candy striper and then realize that she still has feelings for him. But she also realizes that he's a man child who can't fucking commit. So he goes back to Napa and then she meets Alexander, the famous Russian artist. They have a whirlwind affair. He asks her to come to Paris with him. She says yes. When she gets there, she feels isolated and alone, then realizes how how consumed he is with his work and that it's just not going to work out with him. She breaks it off with him. They have that big hotel fight where it like kind of looks like he like hit her, but she like falls and she's wearing that like Chanel necklace and it's a whole thing. Anyway, Big arrives in Paris in the nick of time. He's looking for her. They run into each other. They're by the set and he finally tells her that she's the one. Charlotte also gets a happy ending. She decides that life with Harry, who accepts her with her fertility issues, would be worth converting to Judaism. After the process, she makes she forces him, essentially, to set a date 
in an insulting way and he breaks it off with her. However, they run into each other at like a Jewish singles mixer. And after a very sweet, tearful apology, they rekindle their relationship and get married. And after she can't conceive through through fertility treatments, Harry has no problem adopting, unlike Trey, and so they decide to adopt, and they eventually learn, I believe in the last episode, that they are going to adopt a child from China. Miranda realizes she's still in love with Steve, but he begins a relationship with a woman named Debbie, and so she starts dating a hot doctor, played by Blair Underwood. However, at Brady's first birthday party, as you mentioned, they tell each other that they still have feelings for each other and rekindle their relationship anew. Miranda proposes to Steve, and they marry in a community park in this quote-unquote mess, top 10 best episode. Miranda then does the unthinkable. She moves to Brooklyn where she where they buy a brownstone. And after Steve's mother, Mary, has a stroke and memory loss, she moves in with them. Samantha starts sleeping with a waiter named Jerry Jared, who turns out to be a struggling actor. She uses her PR skills to launch his career and changes his name to Smith Jared. Despite trying to keep their relationship casual, remember when he tries to hold her hand and then she breaks her fucking ankle? That was really funny. She develops true feelings for him. Yes. He supports her after she's diagnosed with breast cancer. He shaves his head in solidarity. He, like you said, refuses to sleep with other women while she has a a decreased sex drive. And when he flies home from a movie shoot, he tells her that he loves her. And she replies with, you have meant more to me than any man I have ever known, which is as close to love as Samantha is ever going to get. The season and the series conclude with the four girlfriends reunited in New York and Carrie receiving a phone call from Big where he finally reveals his little dorky ass name, telling her that the Napa house is for sale and he's headed back to New York. Carrie's final voiceover states, quote, the most exciting, challenging and significant relationship of all is the one that you have with yourself. And if you find someone to love you, all of you, well, that's just fabulous. Fabulous. (laughs) Fabulous. Darren Starr did recently reveal, though. Quote, I think the show betrayed what it was about, which was which is that women don't ultimately find happiness from marriage. No, not that they can't, but the show initially was going off script from the romantic comedies that had come before it. And that's what made the women so attached. At the end, it became a conventional romantic comedy. But unless you're there to write every episode, you're not going to get the ending you want. I'm not really sure. <laughs> that sounds kind of shady, but I don't really think it is. I think he just <laughs> sort of is saying it from a resigned place. Well, because it's like if I didn't write every single episode, it wasn't going to turn out exactly how I envisioned. So he's probably fine with letting that go. And I bet you there was some thought that at least one of the four would end up single at the end of the series, whereas all four of them ended up happily in relationships partnered up. Right. Especially Samantha. I mean, I think the one thing that they did that was good was having her not kind of succumb to an I love you. And that's kind of like the closest to staying true to her character. And I think that she, even though they humiliated her at every probable opportunity, I think ultimately in the end, she got the best arc. And I mean, even though they put her through a lot, I think that she got the happiest ending for that character. Because, I mean, maybe they don't want to see her as a bachelorette going into her 50s i or like maybe that came from like an exec point of view but also there is something to feeling like you owe your audience a happy ending i think as well completely do you want to get into the fashion before i get into the reception yeah absolutely so as we've talked about throughout this whole episode fashion plays a huge part it is a character on the show much like new york this show put stylist Patricia Field on the map. She had been working for many years as a designer and costumer in movies and TV and owned a shop called Patricia Field in New York. Um, and fun fact, she was actually the costume designer for the Shelley Duvall TV movie, Mother Goose's Rock and Rhyme, and won a 1990 Emmy for outstanding costume design for a variety of music or music program. 
She befriended Sarah Jessica Parker in 1995 when they were working on the movie Miami Rhapsody, and it's SJP who actually asked her to design the clothes for Sex in the City, um, along with her then-designing slash romantic partner, Rebecca Weinberg, um, who worked on the show through 2002. Another fun fact, uh, Field and Weinberg were concurrently doing the costumes for the final two seasons of Spin City, of all things, while they were working on the first few seasons of Sex in the City. When it comes to Sex in the City, though, the show is made iconic because of Field's choices to tell the four main characters' stories because of their clothes. As Field put it during an interview with Fashionista in 2013, quote, we were not doing fashion shows. We were telling stories and showcasing the characters through the way they dress. It's a storytelling situation. While most movies have had designer clothing prominently featured, TV had never really gone in that direction. Keep in mind, this is just as prestige television is starting to become a thing. So fashion houses were reluctant to lend their clothes to TV shows. Um, It was still seen as second rate to film, red carpet, and editorial. Another part of this was because when designers don't have many samples of their pieces to loan out, a magazine will only use a sample for a day for a photo shoot, whereas filming a TV show might take weeks or even months. Therefore, they need to hold on to samples for a longer period of time. Field style of high-low, mixing high-end designer pieces and low-end staples or thrift slash vintage pieces created a very iconic look that still resonates today. She also made designers like Manolo Blahnik and Christian Louboutin household names. I had did not realize that Louboutin had been a relatively new designer up until the late 90s. Um, like, I think his first collection was like in 91 or 92. Uh, but ultimately, everyone cannot think of Carrie Bradshaw without thinking of Manolo Blahnik. Additionally, the team that worked with Field would go on to make iconic looks for other TV shows, most notably costume designer Eric Damon, who worked on Gossip Girl and The Carrie Diaries, Paolo Niedu, who dressed Cookie Line on Empire, and Jacqueline Demetrio, who's the designer on another Darren Star show, Younger. Oh, nice. Yeah. I like the fashion on Younger a lot. Me too. Truly the adult Lizzie McGuire we deserve. Oh, my God. At least we have that. You know, ABC can't take Younger away from us, but I guess it's going to be on Paramount Plus, though, now. So I have to have another fucking streaming subscription, which is great. That's what everybody wants. Let's not talk about the though. Let's talk about the reception because we've talked a little bit about like the negative reception. But over the course of six seasons, Sex and the City was nominated for 50 Emmy Awards and won seven. Two for outstanding casting for a comedy series, Jennifer McNamara, who has casted a lot of really great comedies and dramas. One for costumes, one for outstanding comedy series, one for outstanding directing and one for outstanding lead comedy actress, Sarah Jessica Parker and supporting actress for Cynthia Nixon. The show has also been nominated for 24 Golden Globes and won eight. In 2007, it was listed Time's best or 100 best TV shows of all time. Entertainment Weekly has put it on end of decade best lists, saying the clothes from Sex and the City, Raise Your Cosmos, Toast to a Wonderful Wardrobe, Sex and the City has taught us that no flower is too big, no skirt is too short, and no shoe is too expensive. Obviously, in more recent years, it's gotten criticism and praise for various reasons, but I think what there isn't a lack of is critical thought around Sex in the City and that it was well-received when it was on. I mean, of course, you're always going to get like some sexist pushback, which I didn't, didn't want to include because it doesn't matter because it's irrelevant. But it's by and large known as like a groundbreaking show, especially when it comes to HBO's sort of like second wave of establishing themselves as like the golden age of television. I, I will so also now we have add a couple... that one thing. No, go ahead, I, Em. 
yeah, I was just going to say, I will also add one of the things that I hadn't thought of was that uh, this is one of the first shows to show really kind of problematic female characters. So like, so often and showing them as flawed individuals, which I think is why we get so irritated with some of these characters at times. We see them as these multidimensional people, whereas at previous shows, we always had a nice kind of arc of redemption. Oftentimes with these characters, we didn't get that, which was important. Right. If we were talking about, you know, difficult women like a Murphy Brown or even like a Roseanne, I'm just thinking like network. They always kind of they weren't an anti-hero. Like there were a couple of think pieces that I had read or come across that had essentially established Carrie as like an anti-hero in the same way like Brian Cranston on Breaking Bad is somebody that you root even though root for even though they're bad or like they're not a good person. Like they mm-hmm. say that they're trying and they're trying to do these other things that these actions show you that they're not nice and they're selfish. And they're and especially for a woman to be selfish and self-centered and to choose herself and shoes and be willfully ignorant about things is truly a, a choice, especially at a certain age. And so I think to representation matters even if it means that it's someone not being a good person. You know what I mean? Like women can be assholes too. yes so now let's talk about a couple of our favorite guest stars um i wonder if we have any crossover so i'm just gonna like roll through mine and then you you just chime in if one of them has a a link with you so i like i said earlier will arnett the one who bangs miranda at like mark twain's house or whatever like i was surprised to see him he looks literally exactly the same Candace Bergen as Carrie's boss at Vogue. I loved that like pre-Devil Wears Prada. Like it just gave you everything you wanted from that role that the person who would play it. I just really loved every interaction she had with Carrie because she just looked at Carrie as like some inexplicable idiot at times. And I just loved her for it. Obviously, Ron Livingston, burger forever. Don't give a fuck what movie you're in, what TV show you're on, how much time has passed. 100%. I will always point at the TV, Leonardo DiCaprio meme style, like, your burger. Like, that's who that is. When I watched Search Party, I did the same thing. Right? Right? Oh, my God. I'm like, you're still a (laughs) fucking dickhead, even in this show. Um, And then I'm sure you also have this, but John Bon Jovi, who she meets in therapy, which I'm sure our therapist would have words about. (laughs) So many words. But yeah, uh, I like his little cameo. Um, it's weird. <laughs> it's yes. like a totally, it's a very strange relationship. And it's nice that he came in for one episode and that was it. And then I think Alec Baldwin was like supposed to be on and then someone else ended up playing him and I can't remember who. Read, read too many different random articles. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that I love about Sex in the City is the number of before they were famous people who make appearances, like Bradley Cooper mm-hmm. early on in the first season is mm-hmm. like a, guy, a hot guy, young guy at the bar. Justin Theroux pulled an SVU here and played not one, but two characters over the cor- course of the show. The first is like Andy this. Cohen. Yes. Yes. He was an obnoxious writer acquaintance Carrie flirts with at a party to make Big Jealous. And the second is when he plays Vaughn, the guy Carrie dates in season three who's terrible in bed but has the best family that Carrie's obsessed with, including his mom played by the iconic late great Valerie Harper. I always love Rhoda. Um, Timothy Oliphant, uh, Gabriel Locked as the the hot artist guy who films his uh, model conquests. Kat Um, Dennings is a... (laughs) 
We we have to circle back really quickly to Timothy Oliphant's episode because that was so triggering when she wakes up in that 20-something-year-old's apartment yes. and there's yes. no toilet paper and she can't nope. make coffee and it's disgusting. It was like, I need to speak. I'm getting hives, like remembering yeah. yes. waking up in yes. a dump like that. And you know when you walk is- away from the TV s- screen or you walk away from the TV when there's an embarrassing situation playing, like I do that and I did that. I'm too that lazy. Scene. I just I just close my eyes. <laughs> I just close my eyes and pretend it's not happening. But it can't, I mean, Carrie being my age when that was happening, I was like you couldn't pay me to do that yes. now. No, ma'am. no, 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 no. I have two more I want to pull out here, which is Kat Dennings. Uh, playing a young 13-year-old who's having a bat mitzvah that Charlotte, or sorry, that Samantha is organizing, which was based on a real-life story about a girl who grew up in Northern Virginia like me. Her dad was an AOL exec, and he paid to have NSYNC come to her bat mitzvah. Finally, John John Slattery in the season three, two episode arc as a New York politician, Carrie Dates, who just wants her to get in the shower, come back, and then pee on her on him. I mean, it was yes. it was a tough hurdle to get over when I started getting into Mad Men because I'm like, this is just the guy who wants to get peed on all yes. the time. <laughs> sort of. And also another show that I watched a lot of with my mom, my mom and I were both like, it's that guy that likes to get peed on again. And so it took a little while for the Silver Fox kind of aspect of it to come through and to stop thinking of him that way. But <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Oh, That's well. what happens. But the I would also say, um, the, oh God, I am blanking on her name. But the woman that falls out the window, who was on Third Rock from the Sun, oh, um, Kristen Johnson. Kristen Johnson is great too. That's also a great episode. Yes. yes. The and I would also want to shout Amy out really Sedaris. quickly. Oh yeah. Oh, I was to say, um, Amy Sedaris and Molly Shannon as the literary agents were fantastic. Oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. I was just going to shout out the episode where Carrie makes makes a registry so she can get somebody to buy the shoes that oh, were stolen God, from the yeah. party. And the yes, baby shower Tatum. episode <laughs> remained to be like top tier housewife because that's also Lainey, whatever, who shows her tits. She's also yeah. like a character actress. It's not um, Jennifer yeah. Jason Lane. Well, it's it two. Is. There are two married uh, former friend episodes. There's one with Lainey something, and then Tatum O'Neill is the other one. Tatum O'Neill is the one where her shoes get stolen, and then yes, whoever yes. plays Lainey, who is like, oh god, her name is on the tip of my tongue. It's driving me nuts. No, um, I know exactly. I see her. But anyway, those were those were two great little cameos as like former party girlfriends that have now gone straight. So I and I cherish those episodes. But as we wind down, we should talk a little bit about the movies and also the new mini series that are coming together. And I have to say, I liked Sex in the City one. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that where it goes wrong is when Carrie takes Peg back because I feel like him leaving her at the altar is fully in character. He's a piece of shit. He'd yes. fully do that to her. And then her taking yes. him back just so that she can have a walk-in closet is like really not the fantasy. You know what I mean? But also- I never saw Sex and the City 2, but I have seen the clip of Samantha saying Prince of My Labia. And to be honest, that was enough for me. <laughs> so I've seen both in theaters. Uh, the first, like you, I enjoyed the first. Uh, there were, but I did not like that Carrie ended up with Big. I also don't like that at the end, we're supposed to believe that they're both equally at fault here. Like, yes, Carrie got, quote, right? for lack of a better word, carried away with the Vogue stuff. But good God, fucking Big left her at the altar. 
that trumps it all. Um, two two different second, crimes, way way too different. Way too different. And as for the second one, uh, I regret seeing it because one, it was terrible. You know something's wrong when a movie, the only redeeming quality about a movie is that the, there's a 10 minute conversation about motherhood between Miranda and Charlotte that got more praise from critics than anything else in this goddamn movie. Also, it clocks in at 145 minutes. So yours truly sat in a theater for more over three hours to watch this. Well, that's a great segue because I think that's why I'm happier that it's coming back as a show and not another movie. Because even the first one, as much as I like it, is fucking long and it is structured sort of like a season in a way. And I feel like that's sort of like a trap that some that some TV shows going into movies or whatever can kind of fall into is like, I'm trying to make this like a season into a movie. So I am looking Mm -hmm. forward to, and just like that, which was recently announced uh, in January, which uh, in addition to all of the other recent news around sex and city and discussions about it, thought it was like a fitting, um, fitting topic for our premiere episode. And I, I wouldn't want a movie without Samantha, but I don't mind a show without her because, first of all, because I'm a huge, obviously a huge Real Housewives fan. So I love hearing about female friendship in your 50s. If this show was supposed to give me any sort of insight into how your friendships and relationships evolve as you get older, I would definitely want Sex and the City to be not necessarily like an example, but an entry into the culture of what to expect. And so Samantha kind of like growing apart from them totally fucking makes sense to me. I know people are like really upset, but from a story point of view, it makes total sense. The same friends that you have in your 20s and 30s aren't necessarily going to be there in your 40s and 50s. And so I appreciate them trying to tell that story instead of shoehorning it in. And I also have a lot of faith because they have a very diverse writer's room this time, including one of my favorite writers, Samantha Irby. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I think, Again, the show itself or the concept of the show itself works best as like multi episodes and not who wants to watch a fucking three hour movie of this. It's like, sure, I'll watch three episodes in a row, but I'm not going to watch a three hour movie, you know, and I don't think they're going to be hour long episodes either. No, I 100 percent agree. I mean, I could not have sat through another three hour movie. And I don't know if you know this, but the sequel movie, there are two comedians who took their podcast, the worst idea of all time and decided to dedicate their second season to watching the film every week for a full year for an entire season of their podcast, which God, I would never, but yeah, I think like you, I think that it works really well as a show. I think that what you pointed out makes a lot of sense. I hate to compare sex in the city and girls, but it comes up all the time as that was kind of the next big female friendship focused uh, show that HBO put out about 10 years later. But you know, at the season in the series finale of girls, like Shoshana spoiler alert kind of has drifted apart from most of the friends and isn't in fact, doesn't even invite Hannah, Lena Dunham's character, to her wedding. So much like that, I think it's important that we do visit the fact that some female friendships just end. And sometimes it's not over something really dramatic or an argument or whatever, but just gradually over time, people drift apart. So like you, I think that it's important to explore that. And I am looking forward to Samantha Irby being in the writer's room. And just like that, I think it's time for us to pack up our favorite marimba-based theme song and... (laughs) call it a day on sex in the city at 20 some odd years old i'm not doing that math i forget (laughs) not quite 25 Mm -mm, mm -mm. thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the fifth 
season. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and then you can go back and listen to all of our other seasons before it and our mini episodes. And if you love all of that, please rate and review us. And if you want more Old Millennials content, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. And you can follow Emily and I individually on Twitter. I am at Marg, she wrote. And I am at Emily A. Beijing. And until next time, we say bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.